don't seem to. They do indicate that. Uh, we, we can state it positively. We left off in Ezekiel 22 last week, which was an indictment of the leadership and the ministry, uh, so both political and spiritual leadership of Israel, and how God was upset with it and couldn't find anyone to stand in the gap between him and God uh, there in verse, I mean, between them and God in verse 30 of chapter 22. Remember Isaiah 58 there where it says those who will keep God's Sabbaths and who will live correctly will be the healers of the breach. The breach, the gap, the distance, the gulf, if you will, between God and man, or between God and his church and Israel, uh, his physical people. So there was no one who could make up the hedge or stand in the gap, but he is going to find some people who will obey him, and they will be able to close that gap and to heal the breach. <coughs> Chapter 23 then picks it up after that and uh, uses a family analogy here, particularly of husband and wife, to show other factors in the problems that God sees within Israel and Judah. The word of the Eternal came to me again, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they committed whoredoms in Mitzrayim. They committed whoredoms in their youth. So, as soon as Jacob was born as a nation, Israel, 70 went down into Mitzrayim to live where Joseph was, and they started out there as a young nation, and immediately went into whoredoms of one kind or another. <clears throat> so it says it was in their youth that this started, when they were still a very small nation, weren't grown up yet. There were their breasts pressed, and there they bruised the breasts of their virginity. Bruised is a really bad translation there. I looked it up, and it has a very, very broad meaning. Uh, overall, it kind of means to make use of. Uh, in other words, she used them in her whoredoms for the purposes of whoredom uh, when she was young. Uh, didn't have much experience as a nation yet. And the names of them were Ahola, the elder, and Aholabah, her sister. <coughs> and they were mine. And they bore sons and daughters. Thus were their names. Uh, Samaria is Ahola and Jerusalem, Aholabah. So, uh, Ahola represents the northern tribes, and then Aholabah represents essentially Judah and the three tribes that were joined together there at Jerusalem, the headquarters, the, the split in Israel as we understand. Uh, interestingly, uh, Ahola means his tent or tabernacle. So God says that Israel and these two women in this uh, analogy were where he would be, his tent, his tabernacle. So the type here is of marriage to Christ. Uh, and of course he did, in that sense, make a covenant with, a marriage covenant with Israel. Aholabah means uh, my tabernacle in her. I think that's maybe a little more of an intimate word because he is coming to dwell in Judah. In spiritual Judah, we see Christ will come dwell with there in Zechariah 2 and 3, or 2 mainly. So this is his dwelling place uh, on earth. These are or were his wives or his wife. Two sisters of one mother. You take that back, and probably it is referring to Sarah. Uh, Abraham came, uh, had Isaac came through Sarah from Abraham. Then uh, you come on down to Isaac and Jacob, and you have more than one mother there in, in uh, those situations. So it's probably referring back to Sarah, and I think in a larger sense, it's referring to all Israel as the mother. 
uh, he breaks it down here as two wives. But Israel, uh, as Paul says in Galatians 4, is the mother of us all. Uh, so that overall perception is here, along with a more specific analogy for a reason to tell us some things about the northern tribes as well as the southern tribes of Judah. <clears throat> but he's saying here right off the bat, you're where I dwell, uh, you're in my tent. When a woman lived in a tent with a man, that was her husband. So Christ is saying here, this is a very close relationship. Now, I'm going to discuss the problems in the relationship. And he's already started that in verse 3 when he started talking about the whoredoms that started right up as soon as they moved into Mitzrayim. Uh We will see, I think, in the context that this is talking about all kinds of cultural things that were against God, all kinds of ways of living that were against God, not just the politics and the religion as chapter 22 stressed, but this is more an overall thing of culture and way of living. So he says in verse 5, And Ahola played the harlot when she was mine. She was already mine. Uh, we had already had the covenant in the wilderness, and she uh, cheated on me. And she doted on her lovers, on the Assyrians, her neighbors. And there's quite a little bit in here about the Assyrians, not only them, but quite a bit about them. Uh, uh, the book of uh, Hosea talks about Ephraim as a silly dove going to Assyria, uh, and on and on it goes. So quite a bit about the Assyrians, and we know from many, many scriptures, will be those who are used to destroy uh, Israel here in the end time. Isaiah 7, 8, 9, many, many scriptures dwell with or deal with that. So, uh, the Assyrians were her lovers, and she doted on them, which were clothed with blue captains and rulers, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding upon horses. Israel was fascinated, in other words, by the people, the culture, the way of life of the Assyrians, and took after Gentile nations as opposed to living as God had told her to live uh, when he made the covenant with her. Thus she committed her whoredoms with them, with all them that were the chosen men of Assyria, and with all on whom she doted, with all their idols she defiled herself. So all the gods of Assyria, uh, he uses the marital relationship here as the basis for it. But when uh, a mate begins to be uh, unfaithful, and to cheat, and to go with other lovers, uh, she begins to take on their lifestyle. She begins to take on their habits, their way of doing things. It's uh, different than what she had in her marriage, and that's what God is saying here. She defiled herself with all kinds of things <clears throat> that were ungodly. Neither left she her whoredoms brought from Mitzrayim, for in her youth they lay with her, and they bruised the breasts of her virginity and poured their whoredom upon her. So she intermixed with the Mitzriamites, took on their gods, took on their customs, took on their habits, took on their language, and on and on it goes. Wherefore I have delivered her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, upon whom she doted. So you were in the land of Mitzrayim. I delivered you from there in spite of your whoredoms, he says. Now I'm going to turn you over to the Assyrians that you went after. It's your lovers that are going to turn on you. These discovered her nakedness. They learned all the ins and outs of her. They took her sons, her daughters, and slew her with the sword. And she became famous or not famous is a wrong word there, a name among women. For they had executed judgment upon her. 
a girl gets a bad name, a woman gets a bad name if she whores around. And that's what Israel came to be known as, the harlot. And when her sister Judah, or Aholibah, saw this, she was more corrupt in her inordinate love than Israel, and in her whoredoms more than her sister in her whoredoms. She also doted upon the Assyrians, her neighbors, captains, rulers, clothed with most gorgeously, horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. Yeah, uh, things can look good uh, out there in a world that is not part of your world, and uh, the grass is always greener type of thing. Uh, hey, this really looks good. Let's let's get involved here. Does our nation today look godly? When you examine God's Word, God's laws, God's rules, and you compare them with our society today, there's no comparison. We're just ungodly. We're just like all the other nations. We took on those things. And not only that, as we took on ungodly uh, character and way of living, other nations now have copied us and just gone down and become more generate, degenerate as a result of our influence through television, radio, and so on. Primarily, other nations have they dress like Americans now. They act like Americans in a lot of ways. So it's, we look to others, and then others began to look to us as we got worse and worse. And we got worse than they were. All right, let's go on down. Verse 13, Then I saw that she was defiled, that they took both one way. Israel and Judah both went the same way, down into degeneracy. They were not faithful wives. They were not good. They did not serve Christ the way that uh, they had agreed that they would do. Uh, even while the covenant was being made, they were down dancing old Egyptian dances and parading around naked and making idols, even as the covenant was being hammered out in stone on Mount Sinai. So it didn't doesn't take Israelites very long to go the wrong way. <coughs> Both went the wrong way. And that she increased her whoredoms, just got worse and worse. For when she saw men portrayed upon the wall, the images of the Chaldeans portrayed in scarlet or vermilion, red, girded with girdles upon their loins, exceeding in dyed attire upon their heads, all of them princes to look to, after the manner of the Babylonians of Chaldea, the land of their nativity. So, the world took on the world. And as soon as she saw them with her eyes, she doted upon them and sent messengers unto them into Chaldea. Oh, come to me. Oh, I like the way you look. Come on. Let's get together. She was the, she was the aggressor here. Verse 17, And the Babylonians came to her into the bed of love, and they defiled her with their whoredom, and she was polluted with them, and her mind was alienated from them. So, she just got worse and worse in her degeneracy and in her sin. And uh, so she discovered her whoredoms and discovered her nakedness. Then my mind was alienated from her, like as my mind was alienated from her sister. So he says, Judah went the same way. And my mind was alienated from her. Isn't that the status when Christ came to the earth? He was not bosom buddies with the Jews. Uh, bosom buddies in terms of intimate and in any way. In fact, he railed against them. Uh, he was familiar with Ezekiel. He was familiar with all the prophecies. He was familiar with the history, having lived through it with them as Melchizedek and as their husband. And they hadn't changed. So Christ was not happy with the Jews. And yet we have people, even in the church, who say, we need to look to the Jews. We've got to look to the Jews. Well, Christ didn't. 
And Ezekiel certainly not. Got even worse than Israel, it says. So if you're a, you're from Holland or Britain or Ireland or Denmark or somewhere, wherever the Jews are scattered among, uh, they're going to be worse than the rest of the Israelites. And they're uh, leaving God and going away from Him and His ways and His laws. Judah even worse than Israel. So we're to look to the Jews for what? Verse 19, Yet she multiplied her whoredoms in calling to remembrance the days of her youth wherein she had played the harlot in the land of Mitzrayim. So she went right back to her old ways. And we have as well. This nation was founded by people, many of whom were keeping the Sabbath and the holy days when they came here from England. And how long did it take to go back to the pagan holidays and the pagan ways of the world and Sunday worship. didn't take very long at all. And then we multiplied our whoredoms. For she doted upon their paramours, whose flesh is as the flesh of asses, and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus you call to remembrance the lewdness of your youth, and bruising your breast by uh, the Egyptians for the paps of your youth. Just the issue of horses there. I just read an article this morning, two of them in fact. One was showing that in Europe, uh, bestiality is becoming uh, quite commonplace and is increasing exponentially. One man noticed that his sheep were getting where they didn't want to be around people. So he put a camera up in his barn and there were men coming in at night and molesting his sheep. And there they have a, in Switzerland, they have uh, almost a, an epidemic of people having sex with horses. So they're saying we need some rules. And it's spreading through Europe. They, they even have now in some places in Europe um, animal brothels where you can go and pay your way in to molest animals. Is that what he's talking about here? They have the issue of horses? We are sick. That's Israel, most of it, over in, in Europe. Switzerland is, and I think that a lot of Germany is. This isn't something new. <clears throat> God talked about it even back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Not to have a relationship with animals. That it was an abomination. Well, why did he make that a rule? Because somebody was going to be perverted. And the rule is still in the Bible, but Israel's not listening to that. Just getting more and more perverted all the time. Somebody just sent me a, an email. Or about a, a town in Oregon that's being taken over by gays. It's become a, a gay center. They're just moving in from everywhere into that town and more or less taking it over. Well, are we sick or not? Verse 22, Therefore, O, o Holabah, Judah, thus says the eternal God, Behold, I will raise up your lovers against you, from whom your mind is alienated, and I will bring them against you on every side. I didn't look up alienated there. Uh, it's used to show how godless mind was alienated from her, but uh, I don't know exactly what it means here, where the minds aren't working together with her lovers. Well, I think we can... Uh, yeah, I think so. It's getting to the point that our... Lovers around the world are being alienated in mind from us. Uh, there's no woman as bad as the one that you just got rid of, nor is there one nearly as good as the one you just discovered, is an old saying. So we are beginning to despise our lovers, and our lovers are certainly despising us. 
we will take the position of a woman scorned. Uh, and we will stand against some who have been our greatest allies politically and culturally and so on. So there is an alienation of mind indeed that is going on where we're not, we're, we're beginning to see a divergence and they're beginning to hate the whore. Revelation 18, 17, uh, the end of 17 shows how they'll hate the whore and kill her. And we're still the whore. Uh, so there is an alienation of mind that is going on and those nations that we have been so close to and committed all kinds of atrocities with are going to hate us and kill us. Yeah, that fits. Took me a little while to work through it. Um, I'll bring them against you on every side. So uh, our lovers are going to have a a uh, coalition against America. Verse 23, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekod and uh, Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them. You can find different places in the Bible that indicate different nations that will be allied against Israel here at the end time. All of them desirable young men, captains and rulers, great lords and renowned, all of them riding upon horses, which could depict military here. But he says, these are the ones you looked at and you, you thought were so good looking, and now they're going to come and destroy you. So he, he describes them in the same way that she looked at them when she was just getting involved in so many, many ways as humans do. And they shall come against you with chariots, wagons, and wheels, and with an assembly of people which shall set against you, buckler and shield and helmet round about, and I will set judgment before them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. So all these that you took to your bed, he says, these that you were intimate with and close to and had alliances with, like NATO or uh, NAFTA or CAFTA or whatever it happens to be, all the different alliances are going to be destroyed, and they will come and destroy you. And I will set my jealousy against you, and they shall deal furiously with you. They shall take away your nose and your ears, and the remnant shall fall by the sword. They shall take your sons and your daughters, and your residue shall be devoured by the fire. So they'll take the sons and daughters... Uh, into captivity as uh, workers, sex workers, pedophiles. That's coming out in our nation today. The same things we've been doing are going to be done to us. They shall also strip you out of your clothes and take away your fine jewels. Well, she took her clothes off for her lovers. Now, when she doesn't want them taken off, they're going to be stripped off and she'll be raped. Thus will I make your lewdness to cease from you, and your whoredom brought from the land of Mitzrayim, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them, nor remember Mitzrayim anymore. Totally ashamed is what we will wind up being. When you're stripped naked and moving into slavery with your hands on your head, bare butt naked, as Isaiah depicted, uh, there's a great deal of shame involved. And you don't consider yourself so beautiful and desirable and scented and perfumed and dressed up at that point. For thus says the eternal God, I will deliver you into the hand of them whom you hated, even into the hand of them from whom your mind is alienated, those lovers that you have are now despising. And they shall deal with you hatefully and shall take away all your labor and shall leave you naked and bare. So all you've worked for. Americans have worked so hard to have a McMansion and a nice car or two or three or four and uh, a bank account and an IRA and, you know, you name it, our material seeking that we do in this nation. All that we work for, all that we've built. When you're naked and bare, you don't have many possessions left. <laughs> you know, nothing to even spread over your body. And your nakedness of your whoredom shall be discovered, both your lewdness and your whoredoms. We still try to give the image in America of respectability, that we're a fine, wonderful nation. We won't say God-fearing anymore much, 
or Christian. We don't use that much anymore. But we still think of ourselves as wonderful. We still would like to think of ourselves as good. Where's that scripture that says the whore wipes her mouth and says I've done no wrong? I can't quite pull it out, but uh, it's in there. Maybe in Proverbs. I will do these things to you, verse 30, uh, verse 30, because you have gone whoring after the heathen and because you are polluted with their idols. If you're a husband and you have a wife and you want her to be true and faithful and helpful and a mate, and she starts running around out through society and doing all kinds of things, you're not very happy with her. And vice versa, but he uses here because Christ was the righteous husband and Israel's the one that went a-whoring away from him. So he depicts us today as that whore that he divorced. Verse 31, You have walked in the way of your sister, of Israel. Therefore will I give her cup into your hand. You'll get the same treatment. Thus says the eternal God, You shall drink of your sister's cup, deep and large. You shall be laughed to scorn and had in derision. It contains much. It's a big deal. It's a big cup with a lot to drink. Everything that we have done as a society and a culture is going to come back on our heads. You shall be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, with the cup of astonishment and desolation, with the cup of your sister Samaria. Well, you might think, well, being drunk might not be so bad <laughs> under these conditions. On the other hand, the kind of drunkenness he's talking about here is something combined with sorrow that produces a bad effect and bewilderment and confusion and desolation. You shall even drink it and suck it out, and you shall break the shares thereof. Once you're done drinking of this cup, you will throw it down and break it. You don't want any more of that. It will be a bad drink. And pluck off your own breasts. You will be ashamed of your whoredoms, in other words, and you'll try to hide or pluck off or get rid of your breasts, which were used to entice these other societies, cultures, and nations. We're even getting where some of our women in this country in a literal sense are having their breasts removed just so they might not get cancer. Uh, it's In a physical way, we're depicting what he's talking about here. It's in a sense like Christ said, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, or if your uh, right hand offends you, cut it off. Uh, he's saying here that you will despise those parts of you that you use to entice the wrong kind of relationship. Therefore, this says the eternal God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, thrown me under the bus, therefore bear you also your lewdness and your whoredoms. You're, I'm not going to forgive it and remove the penalty. You're going to go through the suffering that comes to an old, broken-down used up whore. The Lord said, Moreover to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholabah? Yes, declare to them their abominations. He says, Don't hold back. Uh, make this judgment. Tell them what they are. And God is the one who's giving Ezekiel the words to say. So he says, The words I'm telling you, you go ahead and declare it to them that they have committed adultery, and blood is in their hands, and with their idols have they committed adultery, and have also caused their sons whom they bore to me to pass for them through the fire to devour them. There again, probably speaking of abortion in our society today, we don't uh, have child sacrifices much anymore. Maybe at the Bohemian Grove and a few places we might still, uh, in that sense, but we kill them and burn them up in a crematory today. 
So murder, adultery, idolatry, all of those things that our nation is so uh, obsessed with anymore. Verse 38, Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary, sanctuary in the same day and have profaned my Sabbaths. So everything good that God set up for the temple, for his dwelling place, as he mentioned in the first of this chapter, his tabernacle, his tent, they have defiled everything godly uh, in his tent, in his house and committed these sins while they were supposedly the wife of Christ. Now, religionists today, churchianity, many of them look to the book of Revelation and other places, do they not, and say that they want to be the bride of Christ. They see that in there. They don't know really what it means, but that's what they want to be. Well, and then he says... Do I want to marry a harlot again? <laughs> is that what I want to do? He told Hosea to go marry one. And say, this is a type of the way it is in Israel. God doesn't want harlotry in his house. So he is going to destroy it. So they profaned everything he says to live by. For when they had slain their children to their idols, then they came the same day to my sanctuary to profane it. And lo, thus have they done in the midst of my house. I just went through a situation <clears throat> where a con man has cheated a lot of people who have come into his little church there and, and taken tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars away from them, like I've been accused of. Uh, but this guy is doing it, and he has put himself in the place of Lord. So when he instructs them, it's the Lord has told you. Uh, and he also has them thinking that the Lord sits on their shoulder and tells them what to do, whether to buy a stereo today or not. And things as every day as that. Well, he got exposed in court uh, quite a bit for what he is. But, you know, to con in the name of religion is the slimiest type of con there is. Because all mankind, on some level, has a view of an afterlife. Now, it varies from race to race and religion to religion, but they all have some view of afterlife, whether it's heaven and hell or nirvana or beatific vision or uh, whatever it might be. They all think there's an afterlife that is innate within mankind, wherever he may be, whatever form it takes. So when someone uses your greatest hope and the greatest drive in a human being is to live and not die. To do anything to live. And to live eternally in whatever their idea of an afterlife is, is an even deeper and greater hope. So when someone comes in and they use heaven and hell or nirvana or beatific vision or whatever it might be against you, to scare you into the afterlife by giving to them. See, in the Catholic Church, uh, the more your relatives give, the quicker you get out of purgatory. And the more you give, gives you a closer relationship to God, because with the Catholics, the beatific vision is <clears throat> that you kind of go to purgatory and it's, it's cloudy and murky there. And as you come out, you get where you can see God a little better. So the object through all eternity is to see God a little better. You know how it is driving in fog? That's the idea of the Catholic uh, beatific vision. And 
you want the fog to begin to clear a little. And the more money you and your relatives get, the better you can see. That's a pretty good con, isn't it? I want to see clearly now. We write songs about that. I can see clearly now. The rain is gone. So that's the Catholic version. And there are others. Well, this guy had his. But I depicted him in court as the slimiest bottom of the fish gut barrel. Uh, his name was Bahu. He's a, he's a Palestinian. So I even... Uh, maybe I shouldn't say this. Bahu, I, I started out, I said, well, Mr. Bu Bahu here, because I wanted to call him Boohoo outright, because he's crying about losing the money that he had gotten from different people. But those people are like zombies. They're just like zombies. They have drunk the Kool-Aid for so long they cannot think for themselves at all. Now, that isn't what we want here. Now, people think that I've taken millions of dollars. There's never been millions generated here in any form or fashion. There aren't enough people with enough money to do that, no matter what. So it has, you know, I got rich on $100 a month from you paying a 2500 a month, and all the maintenance and everything came out of that, plus over 2000 for a mortgage. Uh, that leaves me, after a couple, three, four years, that leaves me around $3 million, I think they say. <laughs> crazy. But this guy has been doing that to people. And he's been using heaven and hell or their relationship with the Lord to con them out of their money. Now that is the, that is the ultimate con game, to use religion to get things from people. That's the ultimate con. I hope you're thinking. I hope you're reading this book. Uh, I've done everything I can to get people to live as inexpensively as possible here. And I'm not trying to get your money out of you. Never have. I don't even mention the offerings very, very much on Holy Days, if you've noticed. I don't say anything about it. The, the, the biggest, uh, they used to give sermonettes in Worldwide, the, what they call them, the offertory sermonette. Followed that by some with the main speaker as well. The closest to an offertory uh, sermon that I've given is the offering boxes on the table. That's about as much as I've ever said. And that's the way it ought to be. It's from your heart to God. I don't want to con you out of anything. Whatever you give needs to be from the heart and freely. And you should be take joy in it that it's going for God's purposes. But think. I hope you're not here drinking the Kool-Aid. I hope that you're reading the Scriptures and that I can expound them in such a way that you understand them better. And I want to help you in your relationship with God not put me on a pedestal. Uh, that got knocked off quite some time back, I think, anyway. And nobody does that anymore, and that's good. Shouldn't have in the first place. God is the one we worship. No man. And no man should get between us and God like this character did over here. Uh, anyway, I was somewhere down here. Uh, where was I? 38. Well, what set me off, it says they've defiled my sanctuary in the same day and have profaned my Sabbath. So, they're bringing their con games and their false religion and false teachings and their whoredoms right into God's tent. We have to be careful. Uh, that's why the priests have to make the difference between the clean and the unclean there in the book of Haggai. To be sure that we're not bringing the world and paganism and our way of thinking into God's church. Be clean, you that bear the vessels of the eternal. So don't profane God's house. And that's what His church is. It's His house. And He's going to come and dwell in it once He's gotten some of it cleaned up, a small part of it. For when they had slain their children to their idols, then came the same day into my sanctuary to profane it. 
And lo, thus have they done in the midst of my house. That's why God spewed us out of worldwide. We had messed his house up, and he didn't like it a bit. So we need to look at worldwide and say, how did we mess his house up? What do we need to fix? What do we need to change? Why did he spew us out? Those are the questions that need to be being asked by anyone who was a member of Worldwide that got spewed out of it. What do we need to fix? There's an awful lot in here about what we need to fix. That's why we read the Scriptures all the time. Verse 40, And furthermore, uh, that you have sent for men to come from afar, unto whom a messenger was sent, and they came, for whom did you wash yourself, paint your eyes, and deck yourself with ornaments? Who were you dressing up to entice? Who were you going to uh, uh, seduce? We fixed ourselves all up, painted ourselves, and we went overseas to find our lovers, our allies, our ways of doing things. And satest upon, or satest upon a stately bed, and a table prepared before it, whereupon you had set my incense and my oil. Called ourselves a Christian nation, and we went out and tried to convert the world, and instead we brought back paganism. And the voice of a multitude, being at ease, was with her. And with the men of the common sort were brought, Sabaeans from the wilderness, which put bracelets upon their hands and beautiful crowns upon their heads. So he says, you, you imported your lovers. You brought them from afar. Commoners, not just uh, rulers and, and the upper crust, but different peoples, different nations you brought from afar, and you have allowed their customs within you. We're beginning to accept Sharia law, are we not? The law of the Muslims. It's being talked about and accepted in various communities all around America. We have defiled everything that God intended us to be. Then said I to her that was old in adulteries, an old whore, I said that earlier, Will you now commit whoredoms with her and she with them? So we, we, we went after the, uh, the guys with the money, the higher crust, the rich guys first. Then we grab the commoners and, uh, and do the same thing with them. I just dropped the bike. So as you get older, you, you take less money uh, for your services. Any old body will do. Yet they went into her as they go in unto a woman that plays the harlot. So went they to Ahola and to Aholabah, the lewd women. And the righteous men, they shall judge them after the manner of adulteresses and after the manner of women that shed blood, because they are adulteresses and blood is in their hands. Now, how do they shed blood? Uh, go into the Proverbs 1 through 7 uh, in that section, and it says that they lie in wait, uh, I think it even says to shed the blood of men, to take them down, in other words, to destroy everything that they are and how you can be destroyed by a woman. Uh, because they are adulteresses and blood is in their hands. For thus says the eternal God, I will bring up a company upon them and will give them to be removed and spoiled. So pillaged, raped, robbed is what's going to happen to them. You sold it, now you're going to give it away. And you've given it away, now it's not given, now it's going to be taken away without your permission. And the company shall stone them with stones and dispatch them with their swords. They shall slay their sons and their daughters and burn up their houses with fire. It says in Isaiah 5 and other places that our houses will be taken away from us. Thus will I cause lewdness to cease out of the land, that all women may be taught not to do after your lewdness. America is going to change. All Israel is going to change. 
not going to live this way anymore. Our whole culture, our whole society is going away. There will not be pop music. There will not be rock music. There will not be modern art. There will not be uh, cigarettes. There will not be all kinds of pharmaceutical drugs. All kinds of things are just going away. Almost everything in our society is going away. There will be no more banks. There will be no vaults. There will be no safes. People won't be allowed to steal. There'll be no more stock market. There'll be no more big corporations. There'll be no big cities. God hates big cities. Americans love them. Oh, let's go to the Big Apple, have a good time. No, those are going away. God says don't build house to house or field to field so that a man has no room. So now we put them them in the smaller cubicle all the time than what they already have and jam them together like rats in a trap. God hates that way of living. There is nothing redeemable. You know, we as Americans say, well, this is the country I love and I grew up here and this is a nice place. God hates every part of our society. Every part of it. Your kids in the millennium, your grandkids-to-be, whatever, they will not have cell phones. They will not have iPads. I will be surprised if we have TV of any kind. They're not going to look at screens hour after hour, day after day, all day long. They're not going to live that way. They'll be out taking care of the sheep and the goats and picking the collards and the apples and plowing the field and playing with animals and playing with each other in an agrarian society. That's the way it's going to be. It's going to be like this. It's all going away. God hates it. How often does a texting teenager send a message to God? Pretty rare, I'd think. How often does God text back? But that's even rarer. We're not going to live this way. Be removed and spoiled, and they'll be stoned in <coughs> <the> houses. <coughs> Thus will I cause lewdness to cease out of the land, that all women may be taught not to do after your lewdness. And they shall recompense your lewdness upon you, and you shall bear the sins of your idols. And you shall know that I am the eternal your God, or the eternal God, not yours yet. But they're going to learn who God is by the destruction of everything that this nation stands for, and all Israel for that matter. <clears throat> Let's go. I went through chapter 24 some years back. Well, in 96, I have in my note here, in December, and expounded it. And then, of course, when we went through Ezekiel some years ago, we never finished Ezekiel, but I went through this again. But uh, let's give it some thought here. Again, in the ninth year, in the tenth month, in the tenth day of the month, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, 10-10 is one of our fast days for the siege against Jerusalem. Son of man, write you the name of the day, even of this same day. The king of Babylon set himself against Jerusalem this day. Well, it is the tenth day of the tenth month. It comes up usually in the first part of January. It's, a, it's one of the four fast days of the year. And that's what he's talking here, where Babylon began to destroy or to set the siege against Jerusalem. And utter a parable to the, to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the eternal God. So here's a parable. <clears throat> Christ spoke in parables. Um, and you had to figure out what it was that he's actually talking about. So this one is a parable, and you have to sort out the meaning of it. Chapter 16 was a riddle and a parable. It was doubly hard to understand, and no one could have understood it until after Worldwide broke up and we could read the history of it there in Ezekiel 16. So this is similar. It's not quite as hard to understand, but it's still a parable. So here it starts. Set on a pot, set it on, and also pour water in it. Gather the pieces thereof into it, even every good piece, the thigh, the shoulder, 
fill it with the choice bones. <coughs> so, big pot or cauldron set on a fire, as we'll see. And uh, you put water in it, he's going to make some soup. That's what this is about. Or people stew, you might say, not beef stew. So, take the choice of the flock and burn also the bones under it, and make it boil well, and let them seethe the bones of it therein. Now, he wasn't told to take people. He was told to take animals and make this big stew. But we'll see here very clearly that it is a parable about people who are going to be put in the soup. Wherefore, thus says the eternal God, Woe to the bloody city. So he says, Woe to the bloody city. That's people, okay? So he's pronounced, by putting these animal bones and flesh in this pot, he says, I'm talking about the bloody city. To the pot whose scum is therein, and whose uh, scum is not gone out of it. So when you cook something, a beef stew, and you heat it up, and you don't see the scum so much, do you? But when it cools, then you see all this grease and fat and scum in the pot. So, he's talking here about not only Israel and the bloody city, but even the scum that's left over after it is cooked is objectionable to God. So he says, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot whose scum is therein, and whose scum is not gone out of it. Bring it and place it piece by piece. Let no lot fall upon it. In other words, don't choose which. Just throw it all in. For her blood is in the midst of her. She set it upon the top of a rock. She poured it not upon the ground to cover it with dust. We're proud of the way we are as a nation. Americans are very proud. If we read the Bible and compare it to Americans, you say, well, what of? What are we proud of? We're proud of supposedly our liberty, our happiness of pursuit. Uh, no, pursuit of happiness. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, supposedly. Among other things. And we're proud to be an American, home of the free and the brave. Well, we're not going to be able to say that. We can't pour it on the top of a rock and brag about it. Are we ashamed of our abortions and the blood that comes from that? Are we ashamed of the destruction of our children in this permissive society that lets them become little monsters? Well, we don't hide it. <clears throat> we leave it out there for everybody to see. That it might cause fury to come up to take vengeance. I have set her blood upon the top of a rock that it should not be covered. God says, I'm going to show it all. I'll let her sins be known. Therefore, thus says the eternal God, Woe to the bloody city! I will even make the pile for fire great. It's not going to be a small fire that this pot's set on. It's going to be a big fire. Worldwide fire, ultimately. Heap on wood, kindle the, kindle the fire, consume the flesh, spice it well, and let the bones be burned. You've got to cook something pretty hard to burn the bones. Then set it empty upon the coals thereof, that the brass of it may be hot and may burn, and that the filthiness of it may be melted, that the scum of it may be consumed. God says, not only do I not like you in the way that you are in the choicest pieces, I can't even stand the scum that's left over after I've boiled the rest away. Now I want it heated so that the pot is cleaned and there's no scum left. He doesn't want anything left of the way that we have been and are. As a church or as a nation. Spewed out of your mouth as vomit is pretty negative overall. 
being burned so hot that even the scum off the pot is burned, is also a fairly negative view, I would say. Now, is God happy with Israel? It does not appear to be that way. He's, we're happier with ourselves than He is with us. Verse 12, she has wearied herself with lies, and her, and her great scum went not forth out of her. Her scum shall be in the fire. I don't want anything left of the way that you were. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I have purged you, and you were not purged. I turned the heat up and didn't do any good. So I turned it up some more. You shall not be purged from your filthiness anymore till I have caused my fury to rest upon you. God is going to rip this nation apart from stem to stern, kill over two-thirds of her people, send the rest into captivity naked with their hands on their heads, and then send the sword after them, Ezekiel 5 and other places. I, the Eternal, have spoken, and it shall come to pass, and I will do it. I will not go back, neither will I spare, neither will I repent. According to your ways and according to your doings shall they judge you, says the eternal God. This is going to be the greatest fall of any society, any culture, any nation in history. The greatest. Now, interestingly, let's, let's go through the rest of this. Also the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet neither shall you mourn nor weep, neither shall your tears run down. He's just given us a parable of what will happen to Israel and Judah, Aholabah and Ahola, in the previous chapter. And now he makes this personal with Ezekiel. So I'm going to take away the desire of your eyes. We'll see what that is here in just a moment. And he says, When I do this, then in verse 17, Forbear to cry, make no mourning for the dead, so somebody's going to die, blind the fancy head, or bind the hat or the fancy headdress of your head upon you. Uh, part of the posture of mourning was to take off your hat or your headdress or your that which you use for decoration. Um, tire means hat or fancy headdress. And put on your shoes upon your feet. In other words, go on about your business. Don't uh, sit there barefooted doing nothing. And cover not your lips and eat not the bread of men. Now, a part of mourning is you are quiet, uh, you are in a mournful state, and part of mourning, uh, well, we do it at funerals here today. Uh, people bring food, uh, give food for you to eat. The Catholics have a wake and they have as much food and booze as an army could eat. Uh, it's just, well, if you ever go to a Catholic wake, you had a feast in the honor of the dead. Uh, been there, done that. So, don't eat the bread that people bring you traditionally while you're in mourning. Get on up, put your shoes on, uh, put your hat on, and go on about business. Don't mourn. <clears throat> Back then, uh, when somebody died, they mourned for 30 days. You did almost nothing for 30 days. You didn't put your shoes on. You didn't go on about business. You didn't put your hat on to go out. Uh, you didn't sit around and just eat food that people brought you while you were in mourning. So he's saying, don't go through that. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening my wife died. And I did in the morning as I was commanded. I went out, got up and went on about my business. And the people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things are to us that you do so? Why are you up going about business as usual instead of being in mourning for 30 days? They didn't understand. 
Then I answered them, The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Eternal your God, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the excellency of your strength, the desire of your eyes, and that which your soul pities, and your sons and your daughters whom you have left shall fall by the sword. So God used Ezekiel's wife, whom he loved very dearly apparently, the desire of his eyes was his wife. God killed her. Now is God serious about our sins and our plight? He made Isaiah run around butt naked. He made Ezekiel here lay on his side the 430 days, one side or the other. He let the prophets go through all kinds of terrible deaths, and will again, and the apostles. God is serious about salvation. God is serious about us obeying Him. So serious that He said, All right, prophet, your wife is going to die as a sign to these people that the things that they like, not just their wife or their husband, but all kinds of things they like, he puts here. He said before that Israel and Judah were his place of dwelling, his sanctuary. So he says, I'm going to profane that sanctuary. I'm going to profane Israel and Judah. What does he say? The excellency of your strength that you're proud of. The desire of your eyes, whatever that might be. And America has all kinds of desires of the eye. And that which your soul pities. I don't know exactly what that means, but that which your soul goes out to, perhaps, that you might think you could help or do something with. And your sons and your daughters. Ezekiel's wife was a type of them, and they will fall by the sword. So he's using a pretty severe lesson here. And poor Ezekiel is the one who had to deal with it. And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. He tells Israel, you're not to mourn either. Now, God had told Ezekiel not to mourn because when Israel has all of her sins and her culture and her society and everything about her destroyed, there's nothing to mourn. It was all vanity and pride and sin. Our whole culture is that. So he says, when I take it all away, your McMansions and your IRAs and everything you've got, don't mourn, because it was all polluted. It was wrong. Your hat shall be upon your head, and your shoes upon your feet, marching into captivity. You shall not mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away for your iniquities and mourn one toward another. So he's telling Israel, don't. Mourn over what I just took away from you. Mourn over your sins. If you want to mourn, mourn because of what you are and what you've done. Tell each other. <laughs> Admit your sins. Admit how bad society and culture have been. Talk to each other about it. And come up with the right attitude, God says. Thus Ezekiel is to you a sign. God did a pretty severe sign here. According to all that he has done shall you do. And when this comes, you shall know that I am the eternal God. So the nation is going to go through exactly what Ezekiel said. And God says, don't feel sorry for your nation. Don't feel sorry for your society. You're going to mourn about something, mourn that you were so sinful and ungodly, and turn to me. Also, you son of man, shall it not be in the day when I take from them their strength, the joy of their glory, 
the desire of their eyes, he's emphasizing it, and that whereupon they set their minds. What do Americans have their minds set on? Any kind of entertainment, any kind of pleasure, any kind of wealth, any kind of sin that they might enjoy, materialism, their sons and their daughters. So that's what this is all about. That he that escapes in that day shall come to you to cause you to hear it with your ears. Now, there are many scriptures that show that though that in the end time, when God causes this destruction to come, that some faithful out of the church are going to come to those whom God has appointed as the leaders and look to them to point them to God. In that day shall your mouth be opened to him that is escaped, and you shall speak and be no more dumb. Now remember in verse, chapter 3, verse 26, he told him he would be locked up in his house and would not be able to speak. It's like there's a prophet Ezekiel there, but whatever message he's got is contained within his house. There's not... Uh, he, he has no way to go out and tell the world, or tell the nation, or tell the church, or whatever. Uh, it's like he was dumb. But here he says, when this happens, and the remnant begin to come, then will I open your mouth, and you'll no longer be dumb, and you will have freedom to speak, and a way to tell them the ways of God. Speaking of one or two of the two witnesses here. And you shall be a sign to them, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. So God uses the boiling pot. He uses the death of Ezekiel's wife. And then he says, there will come a time when the remnant begins to come. This is Zechariah. This is Haggai. This is all those prophecies you've read about, about what's going to happen here at the end time. Then he says, I'll open your mouth to speak. Won't happen until then, but then it will happen. So this parable is about, number one, the church. Number two, the nation. Because Ezekiel represented God's tent and sanctuary in a way that the peoples of Israel did not. Ezekiel was following God's way. The rest of the nation was not. So God used him to show them what they were. And that's what he's going to do here at the end time. And then he is going to bring the faithful ones whom he will stir to come and listen as they escape the death and destruction of the nation and of the Assyrian, where it says there in Jeremiah 50, they'll run out ahead of the Assyrian and look for Zion. How do I get to Zion? I want to be among those people. So God is going to have some signs and wonders here in the end, just as he did with Ezekiel way back then, because it's talking about today.